Hello, everyone. Welcome to Health Formation. This is Katie, and I'm your host. And thank you for joining us today. I'm here with Marcus. Hey, guys. How's everything going? Marcus is at work and taking a few moments to do a little recording with me. So I'm glad he was able to work us in, and I'm glad he has a job. <laughs> I know. Me too. Thankful for both of those. I'm taking a bit of an early lunch now. So awesome. All right, so today's episode is going to be a little different um, because it is kind of going to be doing a deep dive into some literature, which sounds a little nerdy, but I think that it will be kind of fun. (laughs) Marcus is agreeing I'm a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is fun, but it's definitely, it's complex. And that's what I think we can bring to the table is we can read literature like this and actually understand the data and the information behind it and not just what the authors want us to believe and we can break down everything and give you guys a a real understanding of the reason that i chose this topic is because a new study came out comparing um, a low-fat whole food plant-based diet to an animal-based ketogenic diet and in the world of nutrition these are like the two camps that are constantly fighting each other one thinks theirs is better than the other so it's very interesting to see them compared head to head in a very well done study it's not just a an epidemiologic retrospective study it is a very well thought out well planned study Um, and we'll discuss all of the details of the study but I think that the results of it will be interesting and if you are interested in it there's a lot more debate and Um, It's a healthy debate, not a mean debate, going on about this study on Reddit and on Twitter. So if we don't give you all the information that you want, um, you can go to one of those sites and see a little bit more information about it. So the primary investigator on this study is Kevin Hall. He's a PhD. And so he um, has done a lot of research on plant-based and ketogenic diets. And so we wanted to kind of give you an overview of what it looks like to do a metabolic study and then also talk briefly about one of his other studies that published um, a year or so ago in a journal called Cell. So to start out, um, let me just give you a little quick overview of what a metabolic study is and does. So a metabolic study is one that is very well controlled and done in a metabolic ward. So this one was done by in an NIH metabolic ward, and it's completely controlled and standardized where all the foods made exactly the same way for everyone, and the food is made to follow exactly the diet that was developed for these people. So in the low-fat f- diet, there is truly you know less than 15% fat, and in the or in the high fat diet opposite, more fat. So the one of the big problems with looking at a ketogenic diet over a long time, or same with a low fat diet over time, is that we see people aren't truly following the diet the way that they're supposed to. So a couple months into the study, the people in the keto group, or a portion of them are no longer producing ketones, which shows they're eating more carbs than they're supposed to. So we can't really get a true assessment of how that diet is working for those people. Anyway, tangent, that is all controlled for in this metabolic study. And they um, also simulate a real-world experience by having 
dining tables so people can come together and actually eat. So it's not just like they're in their rooms locked away eating. Um, and then they also receive metabolic scans of DEXA scans and BODPOD, which looks at their full um, body composition before and after each arm of the study so they can see how like their fat mass change and their, and their muscle and that kind of thing. So that's a little bit of an overview of what a metabolic study is. So the first study we'll talk about is comparing an ultra-processed diet versus an unprocessed diet and how either diet affects um, calorie intake and weight gain. And so it was theorized that ultra-processed foods would cause overeating and obesity because they're calorie-dense and they're super palatable because they're high in sugar, salt, and fat. And sugar, salt, and fat are things that our bodies crave. So when you eat something that's high in either of those, it makes you want more. That's kind of why food companies and everything add sugar, salt, and fat to everything to make you crave it more and more and more. Like if you ever eat one chip and don't eat anyone, I mean, any other chips, you have strong willpower. Yeah, that's impossible. Yeah. But anyways, um, <laughs> that's what the study wanted to look at was just if the ultra-processed diet would cause people to eat more food. And they use the term ad libitum, which just means at will. So they're free to eat as much or as little as they want. So in this study, um, it was a crossover study. And the methodology of this study that we're talking about is exactly the same as the methodology in the next study, just with different diets. So that's why I'm going to explain it now, and then you can remember it for the next study. So it's a crossover study, 20 patients that were um, – pretty much a normal weight. Their average BMI was 27. Um, so I guess technically that would be considered to be an overweight BMI, but not obese. And they were 10 males and 10 females. And so they were put into this metabolic ward for 28 days. So for two weeks, they would be given a diet that was completely whole food. And then for two weeks, they were given a diet that was highly processed. But the cool thing about it was that they were, the diets were matched, macronutrient breakdown was matched in each diet. So they were given 37% fat, 15% protein, 48% carbs in each group. So, and then they also match the fiber, which is another thing that I thought was really good about this because usually in a very processed diet, there's no fiber. and We know that fiber is satiating. So in order to match the fiber, they provided the, um, in the process group, they provided them with a fiber filled drink to have at each meal so that they could match the fiber. Um, so they were completely matched and they were provided the meals um, approximately two times the amount of food that they would need based on their average calorie consumption for each meal. And then they had unlimited snacks throughout the day. So for two weeks, they were in the unprocessed, and for two weeks, they were in the processed, and then they crossed over to the other group, and they were randomly started in one group or the other. So not everyone started in process and everyone, or everyone started in unprocessed. They were random, and then they switched. So um, the, um, go ahead. The two-calorie intake thing, I was confused about that at first, but then I did some reading, and that's pretty normal when you take somebody's BMR and multiply it by 1.6, which is what they did in this study and then got their total calorie needs for the day, accounting for like basic activities um, and everything. So that was like spot on with 
what nutritionists recommend for calculating your daily calorie needs. So they did a really good job with that. It's just, I couldn't really find anything that I didn't like in the methodology when they planned this study. It was pretty solid. Yeah. One of the things that I really liked was the breakdown of the macronutrients that they used was very similar to a regular standard American diet. So 37% fat, 15% protein, 48% carbs is basically what people in America are eating. So it's normally like 50 to 60 carbs and then 30-ish fat, 15 to 20 protein. So that was good because it reflects what we are truly eating. Um, The only thing they couldn't match, which is very obvious when you're thinking about what you're eating, when you're eating processed versus unprocessed foods is added sugars. So it was interesting. I noticed that um, when they because they broke it down versus meals, snacks, and then total of combined. And I don't know if you saw this, Marcus, but like the meals, they matched fine with the added sugar. There were no added sugars. But then in the snacks, it was like 50 versus zero. (laughs) So um, all the snacks. And they put pictures of what the people were able to eat for snacks. And so in the unprocessed groups, it was fruits. And in the processed group, it was like chips and Cheez-Its and all these other things that obviously are all added sugars. It's really hard to find a processed snack that doesn't have sugar in it. It's kind of hard to find anything that doesn't have sugar in it. True. Exactly. So the results of the study, um, when they compared the second week of each arm, they noted that there was a total energy intake that was almost 500 calories higher in the ultra-processed group during, I mean, versus the unprocessed group. And there was a higher quantity of carbohydrates and fat, but not protein during the ultra-processed diet. So that could be from a lot of things because most processed food is high in carbs and fats and doesn't have a lot of protein. And then I read somewhere in the study that to like make up for the protein deficiency in an ultra-processed diet, people will look for just like overconsumption of food just to get that macronutrient up and that'll end up running up the carbohydrates and fats as well. But they did show that protein was matched pretty equal in both arms, both the processed and unprocessed. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because people could eat the amount and whatever they wanted, but just naturally their inclination was to eat the exact same amount of protein. It was like 460 versus 462 calories or something. It was literally perfect. That was crazy. So the primary endpoint of the study was to look at the calorie difference. But as a result, then they also looked at body weight and body composition. In the ultra processed group, participants gained an average of 0.9 kilograms, which would be around two pounds. And then in the unprocessed group, they lost an average of 0.9 kilograms. So it was exactly the same just up versus down and there was no difference um, if the patients or if the participants started in the process or if they started in the unprocessed it was still the same amount of weight gain or loss that was one thing i know you said from baseline they mentioned that they didn't really have a way of doing a washout period before and setting everybody up so everything was equal at baseline but even with all things considered there was still evidence that the ultra processed food is worse and the unprocessed food is better, like by the standards of weight and body composition. 
Right. So a lot of times what people will argue like macronutrients, but we can see that even with the macronutrients matched, you're still overeating when you're eating processed foods. And one of the things that we'll talk about in the, it really applies to the next study, but um, is the calorie density of the foods. So because there's more fat and sugar added into these processed foods, you're eating less grams of food, but you're getting more calories. So you're feeling less full. Um, so that contributes. That's what I was trying to explain to someone. Say you took a quarter cup of peanut butter and compared that to a quarter cup of strawberries or blueberries or something. Like one is high fat. There's nothing wrong with peanut butter. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I know you love peanut butter. Oh, it's my favorite. But if you took and compared the two, one is high in fat, so it's going to be inherently high in calories. And the other blueberries are probably like a quarter of the calories, but you're eating the same volume of food. So that's what I think uh, we're going to see later in the next study is volume is like inversely related to energy intake when it comes to nutrition for the most part. So I just think that's something that we need to keep in the back of our mind when we go and compare um, the studies later. It was interesting because I learned this at an ADA meeting one time, American Diabetes Association meeting. They were talking about how you could take one cup of like a vegetable broth soup and one cup of a milkshake and drink Mm -hmm. both of them. And it's volume wise going to be the same. And you're going to feel as satiated with one versus the other. But obviously a milkshake, a cup of a milkshake could have a thousand calories and a cup of a vegetable soup is going to be like a hundred. So that is an interesting comparison when thinking about volume. No, I was just going to say that's something that a lot of people make the mistake when they start to try to eat healthier is they'll pick up things like nuts and seeds and granola and peanut butter and foods that are very healthy, but they're just energy dense. And that's where people go wrong. A lot of times they get discouraged because they're not losing weight like they want to, but they're actually eating like as many calories as before, even though they are healthier calories. And on the opposite end of that spectrum is if you are going plant-based, you have to buy way more plants because you're oh, going to need to eat a lot more of the, the volume is going to look way bigger of what you're eating to get the same calories. So, yeah, especially yeah. if you make like a Buddha bowl or something like that. Yes, that's a paradigm shift that people forget about. Yeah. All right, so glucose tolerance was one other thing that they looked at in this study. Um, so the insulin level, your insulin level is going to rise in response to the amount of carbs that you eat. And then your HOMA IR is a measure of your insulin resistance. So there were no differences between the groups in either of these two laboratory markers, probably because the patients were metabolically healthy at baseline and they didn't have diabetes, but they did trend down in the unprocessed group. So I think that if we did this in a, the same study in a group of patients that had type 2 diabetes, we would definitely see a bigger difference in those markers. Um, obviously favoring the unprocessed group. Um, And I think that it is interesting that even after only two weeks in a metabolically healthy cohort, we still saw them trending down. If they stretch a study out like this, so this is just a two-week study per diet group. If you could, this is like obviously more than ideal, but if you could 
isolate someone or have them adhere strictly to a diet for six months to a year and then see the benefits of it, that would be the best way to really understand what diet is like best for whatever you're trying to achieve. Right. I mean, the big problem with these metabolic ward studies is the cost. So, all right. So the overall takeaway in this study, I think that this is pretty obvious. If you think about just looking at a healthy diet, eating processed foods increases the number of calories that you're consuming. So that is contributing to overeating and ultimately obesity and weight gain in our country, which is a very pervasive problem. So taking that, the results of that study and the methods of that study and transitioning over to the second study, also by same group of researchers. Yes. Before we go into that, one thing I wanted to mention about the study being in the metabolic ward and comparing processed foods versus unprocessed foods, this was a really, really magnificent study in terms of when most studies compare unprocessed foods versus processed food consumption, if they're like an epidemiological study, they can't always account for like the confounders of people that usually eat a more healthy diet also make better conscious life choices like drinking more water and exercising and um, just doing other things that we've talked about that keep you healthy. But this study really breaks all of those confounders and directly compares processed versus unprocessed. So I think that was awesome. Right. Yeah, that's the benefit of doing the inpatient is controls for all that stuff. So that is good. Yeah. Okay. So the next study is called plant-based low fat decreases ad libitum energy intake compared to an animal-based ketogenic diet an inpatient randomized control trial. This study is in preprint. It has not been actually published yet but it's in the process of going through the whole thing. So just a disclaimer, not fully published yet, um, but I will still post the link to the preprint for this study and the actual published study from Cell in the show notes if you want to read them on your own. So the study design of this one was, like I said, exactly the same as the study design from the first one where you had 20 people. They did have 11 men and nine women in this one, in the inpatient ward NIH metabolic for four weeks. But then this time they did whole food, plant-based, low-fat versus animal-based ketogenic diet. And it was 15% protein in both groups. In the plant-based, we had 75 carbs, 10 fat. In the animal-based keto, we had 75 fat and 10 carbs, percentage-wise of calories. So the primary outcome for this study was to compare mean energy intake during each arm, and they looked at mean energy intake over the two-week period, and then they also looked at mean energy um, intake over week two only to give people time to adapt, especially to the ketogenic diet, which we'll talk about that. Yeah. There's one quote in the study under food intake. It says, whereas energy intake was not significantly different between the first and second week of the plant-based diet, energy intake during the second week of the animal-based diet was 312 calories lower than the first week. So you can like speculate a lot off of that and interpret what you want. But this is kind of going back to the stretching out a study would make it that much more believable or 
have stronger evidence for it, but I think it like could have something to do with like the production of ketones. Definitely. Once into ketosis, then you feel like you don't need as much food, but that's all just like speculation. So it's, it's hard to go off of anything like that. But regardless of that, the calorie intake was still higher, almost 700 calories higher in the animal-based keto, I mean, not keto, low-carb diet than the plant-based diet. And that kind of goes back to the energy density and the fact that this was a free will study. You could eat as much or as little as you wanted to. Um, I think in reading some of the responses to this study, the main um, complaint or critique, I guess, was the duration of time in the keto. And they were saying, you know, it takes time to adjust to keto and get your body into ketosis. Um, But when I was looking and I tried to find other studies that looked at um, changes in calorie consumption over time on a keto diet, and it looks like from week one to week two is when you're transitioning your body into ketosis, and then usually week two to week three to week four is is more consistent. So although we saw that big jump, um, decreasing calories, 312 from week one to week two of a decrease, it it seems that that would be kind of their maintenance calorie intake once they hit two based on information from other studies that I could find. I was just going to say that would still put the animal-based diet 300 calories above or 400 calories above the plant-based diet. Right. Yeah. So even looking with the, when you're comparing just week two, when the animal base was in the lower consumption, plant-based still even had lower consumption than that. So overall, um, people in both diets lost weight. So you can see the big thing, all camps can agree, is removing any of those processed foods because obviously these people were probably eating processed foods um, in their life outside of the metabolic ward. And then when they came into the study, those Mm -hmm. were removed, helped them both to lose weight. Yeah. during the study. So 1.77 kilograms in the keto arm and 1.09 kilograms in the plant-based arm. This was a non-statistically significant difference, but there was a weight decrease in both groups. So one thing everyone can agree on is eating whole real foods is better than eating processed frankenfoods. Yep. Um, and then another thing that you can probably deduce would be that the weight decreased more quickly in the keto group And this is because of a loss of fat-free mass in the beginning of the time that you switch to keto. Because when you're losing, at the beginning of the time that you're switching to keto and you're starting to produce ketones, you're losing a lot of um, glucose that was stored in your body and that has calories. So that is being removed and you're losing a lot of water with that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So you saw a sharper decline in weight in the keto group during week one. And then in the plant-based group, it was more of a steady decrease over the two weeks. And if you're looking at the fat mass loss, um, there was more of a reduction of fat mass in the plant-based group. But in the end, it was a non-statistically significant difference in fat loss at the end of the two weeks. Yeah, and that's something that I thought was super interesting because all of the keto advocates are like, eat fat to burn fat, the whole bulletproof coffee and everything. But like here we saw that 
the plant-based diet reduced, even though it was not statistically significant, there was still a difference. Um, so you could take like some clinical application from that, that a plant-based diet helps you burn fat or not really burn fat, just lose fat better than a keto diet. Well, it's interesting because everyone's like thinks the second that you eat a diet that's high in carbs, you're instantly going to balloon. Like you're going to be. There's there's a total difference when you compare like, uh, I guess like it goes back to the process versus unprocessed. If you eat a diet with 300 grams of carbs and it all comes from white sugar, white flour and McDonald's sweet tea, then like you can't really compare that to something where you have whole grains and like an adequate amount of fiber and like beans and I don't know that just like bugs me when people try to compare the two and right. it like I was just listening to um David Katz he's a nutrition expert at Yale and he said I hate the word carbohydrates because a kidney bean and a jelly bean is both a carbohydrate that is yeah. true um all right so the this was my one of my favorite parts of this study because of my interest in diabetes and my relationship with my patients with diabetes. So they had all patients in the study wear a continuous glucose monitor. So if you're not familiar with a continuous glucose monitor, it's a little sensor that you wear on your arm and it can check your blood glucose every five to 15 minutes, depending on which CGM they wore and sends it to a receiver or an app on your phone. And then you get a chart and a graph of what your blood glucose looks like over time. Those things are so cool. They are really cool. I want to try one. So the mean glucose, the mean glucose levels. Now remember this was in a patient population without type two diabetes. And so a normal blood glucose really in a healthy patient population should be under 100, preferably all the time, definitely under 140. So we're looking at those kind of numbers. Um, and so, and this is in milligrams per deciliter. If for some reason, someone from another country is listening to this, <laughs> we use milligrams per deciliter in the U S so the mean glucose in the plant-based group was 94 milligrams per deciliter. That was over the whole time period. And then in the keto group was 81 milligrams per deciliter. And that was statistically significantly less in the keto group. But again, the people in the keto group weren't eating any carbs. So that's very expected that they're going to have a statistically significant lower um, um, blood glucose. Now, what we always talk about or what we always hear in utilizing a plant-based diet for type 2 diabetes control is you're eliminating all that fat. So you're letting your cells do their job better in regulating glucose and utilizing insulin. So the way and what they say in the mastering diabetes method is that the way, the true way to test this is to do a two hour oral glucose tolerance test. So a two hour oral glucose tolerance test is when you drink 75 grams of a glucose load sugary drink, and then you wait two hours and you check your blood glucose and you see what happened to it. And so they, the, the, what they always say and what we always hear is that when you do that for people that have been on a ketogenic diet, then their blood glucose goes way up because their insulin sensitivity is so decreased because their cells are filled with fat. Well, we saw that in this and I love that. So the two hour glucose tolerance test, the result at two hours 
in the plant-based group was 108, which is a normal blood sugar. And in the keto group, it was 142, which is actually trending above. So always, we want always under 140. Of course, 142 is very close, but it's mm. close to that what over what we want to see. And then the mean over the whole two hours in the plant-based was 115, and in the keto group was 143. So looking at the two-hour oral glucose tolerance test, it seems that when you do a ketogenic diet, it is actually impairing your body's ability to then deal with carbs when you eat them. And I think that's a big problem with keto because it's so unsustainable that when you go back to eating a normal diet, then it just wreaks havoc on your body because your body can't handle carbohydrates like it was before. Right. And so then that's the thing. Like you do a keto diet and then you eat a banana and your blood glucose skyrockets, well, it's not the fault of the banana. It's because your body yeah. cannot process those carbs because yeah. it's not, it's so filled with fat. You need to give it a yeah. little time to process out all the fat. Um, very interesting. I liked that a lot. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we didn't mention was the insulin. So when blood glucose goes up, your insulin level also goes up. Um, physiologically to decrease your blood glucose. So we saw a similar increase in when, as your blood glucose rose in your, in the plant-based group, it was an average of 102 in the postprandial for the um, plant-based and 80 for the keto. We saw a much higher increase in the insulin than in the keto, but both of the groups was physiologically normal. So even though it went to 102 in the plant-based, that's a normal blood glucose, and that's okay that it went to that despite them eating a high amount of carbs. Um, Did you get anything one, else out of that that I missed? Um, not really out of that. The one thing that I wanted to talk about was the fasting lipid panel. Okay. Mainly like triglycerides. So the triglycerides were actually fasting triglycerides were actually lower in the keto diet than they were in the plant-based diet, but postprandially they were higher. So um, fasting triglycerides and postprandial triglycerides, if they're elevated, are like an indicator of um, like an elevated risk for heart disease. So you can kind of like look at that like a double-edged sword, I guess. Or maybe just like not a sword at all because it doesn't mean anything to us. <laughs> but it's not, I guess the keto diet isn't as bad in regards to like fasting um, lipid levels, which is most of the time what people get tested. But then obviously after you eat a half fat meal, you're going to have a high level of fat in your blood and that can go back to the clogging up your insulin receptors and decreasing insulin resistance and that is like, I guess you take it with whatever risk you want to. So what do we think of are the main take-home points of this study? To me, oh, I'm going to start. Oh, go I ahead. What I was so I think the keto diet can be beneficial for short-term weight loss and a little bit of blood sugar regulation. And then there's been like anecdotal data that it helps with lipid panels, like Dr. Asbill said it helped with his um, cholesterol panel, but he was only doing it for a few weeks. So I think it'd be like, okay, short term, but 
it's definitely not sustainable long-term and I don't think it's healthy long-term either. Right. All right. So my biggest take home, I don't think my idea at this point changed from reading this article, but to me it is, if you're going to do a diet, you have to fully commit to that diet. You can't partially do one of these because you have to come, you have to follow it completely to see the benefits. So mm-hmm. for the plant-based can't do plant-based high fat because then you're going to see the same insulin resistance problem as you saw yeah. before you switched to plant-based. If you're mm-hmm. going to do keto, you can't do like a little bit low carb because then you're not going to be in ketosis and you're not going to see those benefits for the weight loss that we think of with ketosis with keto. Um, so you truly have to just pick a diet. You can't pick little parts of each diet that you like and stick with it. And also, you know, you have to try to make it in your lifestyle so that it's sustainable, something you can adhere to long-term. Yeah. What I would say kind of bounces off that. I think, uh, a more sustainable diet model needs to be studied. Whatever diet you do or whatever lifestyle change you make, I think the biggest thing would be to eat less processed foods. Definitely. No sugary drinks. Yeah. That's a huge one. That's just mix that, right? Yep. And uh, flexitarian is a diet that always scores really well in the – this is a really healthy diet, also sustainable, um, because you can still eat little meat and eggs. Um, you're just eating a majority of a plant-based diet. So that is a yeah. diet that is really healthy and then also um, like easier lifestyle-wise to adhere to. Yeah, that's more so what I do now. Like Same. Days where I won't eat meat at all, and then like if it comes around to it and we cook, salmon or steak or even chicken sometimes i'll just jump in oh the one thing i did want to say too is that they also looked at in both of these studies they compared like the palatability and the way that the food tasted and how people liked it um and there was no difference between the yeah. groups and so sometimes people are like oh I, they think like oh i would miss meat or like i can't do it or the food in a plant-based diet would be gross but results of these 20 people they didn't see that yeah and you just have to with any new diet if you go from what you are eating now and start something new and you expect it to be exactly the same it's not going to you have to like let your taste buds develop to it and get creative and try new things and season something with this instead of that and throw a pinch on and that like just make the kitchen like your masterpiece and just go crazy. Make it fun. Exactly. That's what um, I do. I put this and a little bit of that. All the herbs and spices. And those are so good for you. Yeah, I know. I think I'm going to start an herb garden. And uh, so we moved to a new house and like, it's actually like a legit house. So I have a back porch and uh, I'm going to start growing like basil and mint and thyme and oregano and all that. Yeah. I just, I have some tomatoes, peppers, hot peppers, and basil. So that's what I'm growing. And I have two little green tomatoes. So I'm really excited. That's that's exciting. I know. It's really exciting. I hope everyone learned something from today's little summary. If anyone has any 
comments or crit critiques of their own on these articles um, or would like to just weigh in, please feel free to do so on our Facebook or our Instagram. So any of our social media platforms um, on Facebook, we're at Health Formation. Uh, Instagram, we're at Health Form Pod. So weigh in on there. I would love to keep this conversation going and hear other viewpoints, especially yeah, if you're in the keto camp because we may be a little biased yeah. towards the plant-based camp. Yeah, it's always good to see things from a different perspective. And if anyone has any ideas for like episodes that they want to hear about or topics that they heard somebody say this about and they want us to get down to the bottom of it, just let us know in any of our social media platforms. We'd be more than happy to explain everything to the best of us. We like to learn new things too. Yeah, exactly. It's my favorite thing to do. What is your one takeaway point? Or well, my one takeaway from this or for the day? The day. We'll go with the day. Um, my takeaway for today, it's a very nice day outside. So my takeaway is to just go outside and try to get a little bit of sunshine on your skin and breathe in some fresh air. And walk around barefoot. Get walk around day. barefoot. I'm not wearing any shoes, so I'm going to go outside and walk around barefoot right now. I can't do that right now, but this afternoon, that's where I'll be. What's your takeaway? I would say with times being like they are, enjoy the small things. Like take a moment. I guess you could like combine both of them. Go outside, like breathe in the fresh air, notice the trees or the birds or just... Gratitude. And just, yeah, appreciate everything that we have. That's it. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Yeah.